0: Ezekiel's call as a prophet. And the main thesis of the book of Ezekiel was presented. Judgment against Israel's idolatry. This theme still continues into the next section. But it becomes more focused upon the temple in Jerusalem. With this said, let us read the text for tonight and pray that God's blessing would be upon us. Our text for tonight is Ezekiel chapter 8. The whole chapter. Ezekiel chapter 8. In the sixth year... In the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, by the lock of my head, and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions to God. In visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, the north of the altar gate and the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the House of Israels are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me into the entrance of the court, And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, "Son of man, dig in the wall." So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, "Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here." So I went in and saw. And there engraved on the wall all the around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jaazaniah, the son of Shephan standing among them. And each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they said, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land," he said also to me, "You will still see greater abominations that they commit." Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there was a woman weep- there. There sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, "Have you seen this, O son of man? You'll still see greater abominations than these." And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord. Between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose, or rather I should say, behold, they put the branch to my nose, Therefore, I will, act in my, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, before us we see the idolatry of Israel. And Lord, as we contemplate now uh, this vision that Ezekiel sees of his contemporaries in Jerusalem, worshiping false and vain idols. Lord, may we see the very own idols that we have in our own land and see, as Ezekiel did, the horror that was before him. Lord, may when we are confronted with our own idols in the crevices of our own sinful hearts, Lord, may you rescue us from such evil. And Lord, would you please illumine to us where idols still exist in our hearts. Uh, Father, we ask now as we uh, understand and as we come to uh, consider the things found in this text here, that you illuminate it through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be free from the bonds of our still clinging uh, to our heart idols, and that that we would finally be free of such horrendous and disgusting uh, sins such as idolatry. Lord, please be with us now. We ask this in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. To briefly introduce our point for tonight, let us remind ourselves of some things that we've seen so far in our study. In verses 1 to 4, we, we see the vision of Yahweh that appeared to Ezekiel in chapter 1. This vision is evocative uh, of this man appearing in gleaming metal, as it were. Uh, this vision is evocative of God riding upon a fiery chariot, surrounded by his entourage of cherubim as we'll see later in chapter 10, uh, and as we saw in chapter 1. We'll have a further description of this vision later in chapter 10, so I won't repeat now what we've seen a few weeks back. But it is sufficient to say that this is the same image that Ezekiel saw in chapter 1 in all its regalia and all its glory. In verse 1, we are given a date that is about 14 months later from the period introduced at the beginning of Ezekiel. If you remember, Ezekiel was commissioned and was given a task to lay on his side for a period of 430 days as a sign act, which was representative of the number of years the people would be exiled. The end of this 430-day period would be about the same time that this vision in chapter 8 would come to Ezekiel. So in verse 3, God, represented by the figure atop the chariot, reaches down to Ezekiel and takes them on a prophetic vision trip. So we read in verse 3, He, Yahweh, put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes jealousy? And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. In this prophetic vision, Ezekiel was transported To the courtyard of the temple. And the depiction of God's glory is there with him in the courtyard. I can't help, brothers, as as I read this text, I kept having this image come up into my mind. In my mind, this scene is something out of like a Christmas carol. An otherworldly being transport our protagonists to another place to gaze upon what is truly happening. Such as the ghost of Christmas present. But unfortunately, Tiny Tim is not there for Ezekiel to well up over. Rather, Ezekiel is greeted by a great idolatrous abomination, verse 3. The image that provokes to jealousy, the image of jealousy. And this leads us to our main content of tonight's message. We, along with Ezekiel, will see Israel's idolatry in all its gross contours. From verses 5 to 18, we have three scenes, three or four scenes of idol worship at the temple. That continue to grow in repugnance. And these scenes will be our main points for the evening. One, I want us to see that idolatry is displayed. is a sin that is displayed. Idolatry is a sin that is deep. Idolatry is deep. And three, idolatry is a sin that is draining. These are our three points tonight. Idolatry is displayed, deep, and draining. And by the end of tonight, I want us to see the insidious nature of idolatrous practices. Idolatry, brothers and sisters, is never superficial. It is always deep seated in the heart of the rebel. And that is why it constantly disappoints. So, then, with this said, let's begin with our first point. Idolatry is displayed, verses five to six. We see that idolatry is displayed here in these verses. In verse 3, we were introduced to this image or this statue of a pagan god, which Ezekiel calls the image of jealousy that provokes to jealousy. There's a double emphasis that this thing really provokes. This thing is insidious. This thing that God sees before him provokes him to jealousy. This depiction illustrates God's attitude toward idolatry. God is a jealous God. And to practice idolatry is, in effect, the de-godding of God. Idolatry is, in fact, the de-godding of God, is still a phrase from D.A. Carson. In verses 5-6, to six, God commands Ezekiel to look in the direction of the north gate, where this, where this image was placed. Ezekiel 8, verse 5, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north, so... I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, here, to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will still see greater abominations. So brothers, I asked Chris to send out an image of the temple so that it will help us with envisioning what is taking place. I believe it's in your uh, bulletin, uh, and thank you for doing that, Chris. It's in your bulletin, you'll see those numbers. That's where it's located in the temple, so it's, it helps you understand what's going on here. Uh, I'm a visual person. I need that myself, so I hope that's a benefit to you. We're all shuffling. So then, what we are seeing here is that Ezekiel... Standing in the larger outer court looks out to the outer north gate called the altar gate. We don't have much description about this particular idol, but it is notable that the Israelites displayed it in the north. The north was the typical direction from where the grand majority of Israel's enemies came from. Assyria, Babylon, uh, all the very ites, right? Possibly the idea was that the idol was there to protect the Israelites in their worship against incoming invaders. The great offense of these idols, however, is that they were used to supplement a perceived lack on Yahweh's part. You see, in Israel's history, this is what we call synergistic worship, is that they took true worship, Yahwism, as we would call it in the Old Testament, Yahwism, and they combined it with false idolatry. This is called syncretism. There's the coming together of these two. And so the idea here is that the great offense of these idols is that they were used to supplement a perceived lack on Yahweh's part. The reason that idols were there was because the Israelites wanted protection and they thought that Yahweh didn't provide that. At this point in Israel's history, Judah was right in the middle of international war and upheaval. They were constantly someone's uh, vassal on one wrong move on their part, could snuff out the remainder of Judah. And so they sought protection in whatever God that they could find. But ironically, it was because of their idolatry that they would face the curses of international warfare. By de-godding God through idolatry, Yahweh would leave their presence and they would be left to themselves against God's unbridled wrath, the foreign nations. God says in verse 6, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. Brothers, it is because of their idolatry that Israel should fear their enemies from the north. It's not because it, God lacks. It's because of their idolatry. God would depart from the land, leaving Israel no hope from their enemies because Israel de-godded God. God. So then, brothers from this section, I want us to folks focus on that very last sentence. But you will see, but you will see still greater abominations. You will see greater abominations. This is quite the statement from the Lord's lips, especially considering the circumstances before Ezekiel. And I want us to imagine this for a bit. Imagine the horror that is before Ezekiel right now. Here is the grandest display of God's presence on earth, the temple at Jerusalem, that was made specifically by his own appointed uh, David, Davidide, his own uh, particular Solomon, I should just simply say, uh, created by Solomon for the per, uh, specific purpose to worship Yahweh. This is the grandest physical display of God's glory that the world had ever known. But right at the outset... Ezekiel is greeted with an opposing message to all that the temple stood for. An image of pagan worship. The situation Ezekiel would be in is similar to us giving our land to, the, to our developers here on the left. Or you're right, I should say. It would be similar for us giving the land to developers and them making a great display of sin right next door to our church. Seriously, let, let's consider this. Imagine If the developers were to build a miniature Las Vegas right next to our church, Dr. Q, if you're watching, I'm sorry I'm using you. Imagine Dr. Q. He doesn't tell us any of his plans, but he just decides, I'm going to make a little mini Las Vegas right next to this church. And imagine that it was advertised as Sin City against all things, against our brand new sign, Grace Baptist Church. And right next to that brand new sign, Sin City. Oh, brothers, that would be a gut punch of embarrassment right then and there, right? But to really bring home this point, remember who Ezekiel is with in this vision. Who's he with? In verse 4, Ezekiel says that the glory of the God of Israel was there, meaning that he was there with them at the temple. Uh-oh. Could you imagine the, the developers of this sin city coming along and showing someone like Pastor Wynn all that they plan to do? Imagine that. Brothers, imagine the righteous indignation on Pastor Wynn's face if some slick developer came along to show him where the adult showing would be. Imagine the disgust on your pastor's face as he is told of the number of people that would fill the bars. Imagine Pastor Wynne's face as he is confronted with people giving over their entire life income for a little good time. Brothers, just this thought brings me such great discomfort and anxiety. Just the thought of it. Now imagine Ezekiel beholding an image of false worship before the one true God displayed in his holiness. Terrifying. With the added weight of Yahweh there in this vision, this embarrassing scenario of idol worship becomes a major, disgusting offense. But our Lord tells us that there is a far greater sin than this to be seen. Far greater abominations to be seen. And Israel's idolatry culminates as we progress through this book, as we will see. Brothers, what we are to see is that the idolatry that is displayed here in pagan or false worship is just the tip of the iceberg. Idolatry in general works in this same way. Now, brothers, it would be easy for me to lambast the various world religions with their images of false worship. Because we know that that is self-evident, right? Right? But what about the Christian church? It's easy for us to look at outside the world and say, yeah, that's false worship. Yeah, that's silly. Yeah, that's uh, uh, abominable before God. Of course, that's easy. But remember who he's speaking to. The Israelites there at the temple. For the ancient Israelites, they erected a false god to serve alongside Yahweh. To give, him a, to give them a little bit more protection from their enemies. You see, Israel comprised, uh, compromised their integrity to the Lord to ultimately try to save their own hide. But as we said, the means they used to protect themselves was the reason God was going to judge them. The, reason, uh, the, the means that they used to protect themselves was the reason that God was coming to judge them. And yet they did not see this. Brothers, this should give us a very long pause as we consider the means that we use to protect ourselves as the people of God. Israel was guilty of using pagan worship, but the Christian church today is just as guilty as, uh, of adopting pagan beliefs into their doctrine and practice all the time. Here's what I mean. It is very easy for the modern church to view itself as successful When things are going well or in trouble when things aren't going too well. There can be a fear of the church not being successful if they don't have certain programs or there's a lack of people on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings. Whether through lack of funds or lack of people, the church can unfortunately emphasize the wrong things. And because the church is too often, has, has this mentality, because it too often has this mentality, they promote or overemphasize things that undermine what the church actually is. For example, our building. It's very easy to view this building as the primary thing. As someone who has done the surveys for this church for a while, I have this tendency myself to view this as the great project, right? Right? But that's foolish. Maybe it's the, uh, uh, or or maybe not the building. Uh, In my view, maybe you're like me, brothers. It's very easy to view this building as the primary thing. Once we get this established, we won't have that fear of going under. Uh, If you ever had that same mentality. If we, uh, or maybe it's the programs that we participate in as a church. If we have enough programs or groups to get our new people involved with, then we can finally ring those people into the new members class, right? We just have that group or that, that program. Brothers, such thoughts are ridiculous. And we know it. We know such views are truly ridiculous. We know this. But too often, these thoughts seep into our beliefs and it informs our practices. Unfortunately, the church, even our church, can display false views, pagan views of what the church actually is. Brothers, we don't preserve ourselves as a church by taking on the world's view of success or what a successful ministry looks like. That's not what we're about. We don't put on a display of what the world thinks we should display. As the church of Jesus Christ, what we are to display is Christ himself. Through our holiness and good works unto God's glory, we shine as lights to this dark world as we are taught by our Lord in Matthew 5. As the Christian church, we are commissioned to glorify God through the means that He has given us to worship Him. And the primary means that God and our Christ has given us is His gospel. That He forgives and renews sinners to a right relation to the Father. Through the presentation of the gospel in both word and in deed, we displayed the means of how God actually builds and sustains His church for His glory. Not programs and not building funds. Rather than look to the success of this world, brothers, let us know that God's display of glory is found when we are humbled and ready to receive from God what He deems sufficient for His purpose in His church. When our Lord confronted the success of worldly leaders, as with the example when the worldly leaders came to the man born blind, Christ remarked this way It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it is with us, brothers and sisters. Brothers, I say this as an encouragement as we go through these processes. Maybe I'm preaching to myself here. I need to hear this. It's so important that we remind ourselves of this. Brothers, don't look to the world to tell you what success looks like for the church. Because that's folly. Look to Christ. Lean upon Christ that he might display his own glory in the midst of our weakness. And in doing so, brothers... I think we can all give a hearty amen to this. In doing so, by leaning upon Christ, by presenting the gospel, Lord, brothers, there, there is much comfort and great reward. Amen? Amen. That's right. So then, unfortunately, brothers, the Israelites at the temple did not lean upon God in the midst of their turmoil. Rather, they continued on in their sin further and further. And as they leaned upon their own understanding, they fell deeper and deeper into their idolatry, which brings us to our second point for this evening. Idolatry is deep. In verses 7 to 9, the Lord brings Ezekiel to the wall of the priest's uh, chambers located on the side of the temple. This is point 2 on that map. And we see that these chambers were made during the time of Solomon's era. By peering into, uh, and these chambers, I should just quickly say these chambers were used for the priests for the, uh, ultimately to house certain instruments, to uh, preparation of the various uh, instruments that they had, the various rituals that they had. It was meant for God's service. But by peering into a, a gap in the wall, Ezekiel was able to behold what is taking place and the facilities of God's temple. In verse 10, Ezekiel states this, So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jaazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. So what we are to see is that in this room that Ezekiel is kind of peering into. Israel had to uh, had set up an, an idol worship center of some kind. It would be similar as if they chose the choir room to start, you know, doing you know, new age yoga. Right? It would be. It's just asinine that something like that would happen. So uh, Ezekiel sees that the animals that Ezekiel saw are the animals that were regarded as unclean by the Le- the Levitical laws, and which were typically used in pagan rituals. But we even get a more disturbing picture. This idolatry was not done by some foreigner or untrained Israelite. This idolatry was being done by the elders of Israel. Elders were those who gave counsel in civil affairs, yet these counselors were involved in deep, deep sin. The fact that Ezekiel knows a particular figure, Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, is fairly peculiar. Ezekiel must have known this particular person before his deportation in 597. He might have even run in the same circles. Shaphan, Jazaniah's father, uh, if you say it fast enough, it'll, I'll get it down. Shaphan, Jazaniah, as, yes, father, was the scribe that aided Josiah's religious reforms. And we see that in 2 Kings 22. So this person's father, Shaphan, was the scribe under Josiah. So during Josiah's reforms, Judah briefly repented from their abominable practices. But it seems that it only takes one generation for idolatry to corrupt once again. All those participating in this idolatry had a censer in his hand. And it seems that the Israels adopted the Egyptian practice of warding off demons through burning incense. And so as we progress... After Ezekiel beholds the idolatry of the elders of Israel, the Lord provides a further comment upon verse 12. This is what Yahweh says about this scenario. And he, Yahweh, said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will still see greater abominations. That they commit. As Ezekiel saw, the elders were in a large room that was sectioned off by the distinct idol that they worshiped, about 70 or so for each uh, elder, possibly. It seems that the elders resorted to blatant pagan worship because Jerusalem was beginning to possibly experience the curses for their sins of prior generations. That's why they say that the Lord has forsaken the land. They erroneously think that God does not perceive their idolatry because they believe that his lack of response to their judgment is an indictment, is an indication, rather, that he is no longer with them. But this is false, brothers, because God is there bringing the curse upon them for their prior and current sins, particularly of idolatry. So, brothers, in this section, we should see the corrupting effects of idolatry. We see that it resides deep in the hearts of the people of Israel. As we noted elsewhere in our study, idolatry was not relegated to the snake handlers of the mountains of Israel. No, this idolatry was pervasive, even to the top echelons of Israelite society, such as the 70 elders and the well-respected Jeazaniah. For me, brothers, and I'm sure for me, like yourself, as a modern Western reader, when I read of cultic and pagan practices like this in Ezekiel 8, it's easy to conjure up caricatures. It's so easy to do to conjure up caricatures such as snake handlers. But that is not what we have represented in the text. What we see here is not something that I can roll my eyes off, or roll my eyes at, or scoff at as if it's uninformed or idiotic false worship of ancient peoples. The idolatry that Israel dealt with in their day is ultimately the same as ours. Idolatry ultimately comes from a lack of belief in what God has revealed. It's not ignorance that plagued the people of Israel. It's the suppression of the truth. Idolatry is deep because it is rooted in the heart of man's sinful unbelief. Here's what I mean. These elders would have been informed of what God had revealed in the Torah. They knew what God's word had said. Even in their confession, they know that they are sinning against God as they worship other gods. They just didn't care. They didn't believe that God would exact vengeance on them for their idolatry as he has promised throughout the Torah. To further my point... Jeazaniah's father, Shaphan, was the one who literally read the law out loud to King Josiah. His father read the law fresh from the book of the law in his religious reforms. It was this man who would father this great uh, or or this heinous Jeazaniah. So to cause... Leave that point for now. Brothers, uh, just with that point, do you... Not think that Shaphan would teach his own son the law if he did so with Josiah. Of course he did. But Jehazaniah still forsook Yahweh. Again, it's not an ignorance problem, brothers. It's not ignorance. These Israelites simply did not believe God's word. And brothers, this is the essential nature of idolatry. It exchanges the truth of God for a lie to worship whatever they ultimately find worthy. In this case, false gods protect them from some possible coming warfare. Again, brothers, it would be easy for me to go after false gods of other religions, uh, religious faiths. But that is obvious to us. In the context of Ezekiel's vision, it was the supposed people of God who suppressed the truth. They suppressed God's word uh, as it regarded to his worship, so that they could worship whatever they pleased. So let this passage serve as a warning for us tonight. Brothers, you might have grown up in the faith. You might know the lingo and the ins and outs of the Christian experience. And you may even be a member of this church. But this does not mean that you worship the one true You see, brothers, these elders believed some truths in God's word, but rejected the others. They believed God was to be worshipped in the temple, but they didn't truly believe that he cared about his worship alone. Brothers, unless we believe what God has revealed is true, and unless the revealed word makes a tangible impact in our lives, then we should not be assured that we truly believe and worship the one true God. How simple a point this is. Yet so many people fail to make it. Brothers, this is so important for our day. We are in the days where many so-called Christians believe that Jesus is some kind of eternal fire insurance. We are in the days when many Christians believe that regeneration is merely moral reformation. We are in the days when many so-called Christians believe that God will somehow make their life better. Yes, there are some truths of the Bible's hidden underneath these lies and distortions. Christ does save us from the wrath to come. Christ does command us to holiness. And God does work all things together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Yes, but idolaters, Christian idolaters, I should say, can very easily distort truths into a lie that is palatable to their unbelieving hearts. We see this time and time and time again and we have seen it in this church. Brothers, I ask you humbly now to consider what you believe. Do you know of the salvation that is provided in Christ Jesus? Do you know the light that he has called you to as his disciple? Do you know the true goodness of our God and his glory? Do you know these things? Do you understand it, not only intellectually, but do you trust and savor it? Brothers, examine what you believe. It is your duty to listen and to heed to the word of God as Christians. My question to you is simply this. Do you mute God's word through your unbelief in sin? Do you mute God's word by your unbelief in sin? Or have you heard in full, fullness and clarity of what God requires of you of simply repent and believe? Brothers, these are just simple truths. But even the simplest truths can be distorted by an idolatrous heart. And if we do not repent from that idolatrous heart, we will be judged along with all idolaters. And that is a terrifying thought. And yet so many... So many in our day will be tossed into eternity, into the pits of hell, because they simply did not ask the question, because they did not probe in their own sinful hearts, do I truly believe this? Let this be a reminder and a warning to us all. May God be merciful to you as you ponder these things. So then for our third and final point this evening, I want us to see that idolatry is draining. Like last time, God, uh, in the last scene, God says to Ezekiel that he would see greater abominations than the previous scene. The first scene was the image of false worship, which was bad enough. The second scene was Ezekiel spying on the secretive worship of the elders but these final two scenes show the ludicrous behavior that accompanies false worship. In verse fourteen and fifteen, Ezekiel is led by God, by the inner uh, is led by God to the inner gate to behold another abominable practice. This is the point three on your on your um, illustration. We read in verse fourteen: Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping. For Tammuz. And then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abomination than these. In this section, we are introduced to a Tammuz character. He is a Babylonian fertility god. The worship of Tammuz was linked to crop uh, rotation. Whenever the scorching heat of the sun appears, the, the idea is that vegetation would die, and it was thought that Tammuz was defeated in battle against some other god or that he simply died. The women at the gate weeping for Tammuz were performing a lament for Tammuz because Tammuz died for the season, is this idea of their mourning the death of their God. Pathetic. So in this instance, we see that idolatry involved not mere performances, brothers, but we should truly understand that it was a religious experience to these worshipers. It was a religious experience to them. They felt something so much that they wo- uh, wept and mourned. But these worshipers did not have a God who conquered, but a God who dies. How pathetic is that? But still further, but then Yahweh show, uh, shows Ezekiel another detestable practice that shows the a draining, uh, uh, draining effect of idolatry upon the people. Ezekiel was brought to the front of the courtyard. Uh, point number four on your illustration. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men and their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. So in contrast to the women, the men were worshiping the sun, the thing that was killing Tammuz. But Ezekiel notes, and Ezekiel notes that their backs are in, how their backs are in relation to worship. They're not facing the temple. They're facing the complete opposite direction. Their backs were to the west where the temple was located. So these idolaters face the east, which is often associated with the place of sin, such as where we see Adam and Eve were cast and where the scapegoat was sent into the wilderness. They were sent east. But this heinous sight is further indicated, uh, indicted by Yahweh. Verse 17. But then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? But they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to my nose. Therefore I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So not only is there great idolatry, guys, but but these abominations are attended by a great sin, attended by the great sin of violence, is that violence is erupting throughout Judah. So we see within these scenes, these cumulative sins are illustrated by the Israelites poking God's nose. The nose in the Hebrew mind is a symbol of great anger, And so God responds to this provocation by bringing his unbridled judgment against the people as we read throughout the rest of the uh, chapter. As he says, Therefore I will act in my wrath, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. In contrast to this false worship, brothers, I want us to close with this. In contrast to this laughable, silly, in their eyes, a true experience, we need to see that the worship of Yahweh, more importantly, the worship as revealed, uh, Yahweh in Christ Jesus, is so much far better than that false pagan worship. In contrast to this false worship, idolatry brings disappointment, and it is indeed draining. The women weep because their God died, and the guys who are worshiping the Son they're bringing in violence into the land. Some some deity, some religion, some worldview. Eventually, for these sun worshipers, they will eventually be dashed to pieces like the women. It's just all on a cycle. But that is not what we have in Christ, brothers and sisters. Brothers, if you would, and as we uh, end our time tonight, let's turn to Romans 8. And please turn uh, in your Bibles there with me. Romans chapter 8. We'll read a little lengthier passage, but I think it's helpful for us to consider what we have in Christ. In comparison to the death, in comparison to the futility and the foolishness of false pagan worship, in comparison to what we once used to believe, brothers, I want us to see the surpassing worth of having Christ Jesus as our God. So then, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and this is because of Christ's perfect atonement and as, uh, as the substitutionary atonement in our place. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That idol at the north could not, could not save them. That idol at the north gate at the very first scene could not save them from the condemnation of God coming upon them through foreign invaders. But what we read here in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is important, brothers. For those who live according to the flesh, for those who live according to some idol, for those who uh, seen the, see the pursuit of going after false, vain worship, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And that's why we have... Uh, disruption in the streets there in Ezekiel. And that's why we have women weeping over their God. But not with us. But for those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is what? Is life and peace. So much better. Jesus is so much better. Our Christ is so much better. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God because it has an unbelieving heart. For it does not submit to God's law because it does not believe God's word. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But verse 9, you, however, O Christian, you are no idol worshiper, You are the ones who have been called by Christ himself. You, however, are not in the flesh, in your sinful idolatry, in your heinous sin before God no longer, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, brothers and sisters, if he is indeed in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, Christ's righteousness to us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Tammuz cannot do that. Shamash, the sun god, cannot do that. The abomination at the north gate cannot do that. Muhammad cannot do that. Buddha cannot do that. The vain Jewish myth that it's just Yahweh not revealed in Christ, cannot do that. But it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who can rescue you from sin and death and from your own sinful, idolatrous hearts, brothers and sisters. It is because of Jesus Christ, who he is as the fount of all life, that he is able, that we are able to read these words in Hebrew, uh, uh, Romans 8, that he gives us life and that though we are still in these mortal bodies, we have hope. Those at the temple did not have hope, but those who have Christ Jesus, those who love him in true sincerity and true heart, those who have repented from their sins and turned from their wickedness and have turned to Christ, bowing before him, knowing that he is indeed the only Savior there is. He, indeed, brothers and sisters, and is our great hope, the only one who can rescue us from the wrath to come, but he's also the one gives us life and life to its fullest. Again, brothers, Jesus is so, so much better. May we remind ourselves that constantly as we go through this exile that we're on as the American church, quote unquote. Lord, uh, brothers, help us uh, be helped and know that God is your help in this present evil age who leads you home, knowing that he has indeed given you life through the power of And the working of the Holy Spirit. Lord uh, may we uh, pray to our God now. Father we thank you that indeed. False gods. The heinousness of idolatry. Has been removed from our hearts. But Lord we recognize that. Still within our hearts there is that bent. And that waverness within us. Lord as we are encouraged by these final words of Paul here. Help us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, not towards idolatry, but to faithfully living for you and knowing the satisfaction, the joy, the betterness of who you are in Christ Jesus. Father, forgive us where we so often lose sight of that and where we do not look to your word, but help us to lean upon your word forever and always that we might know and taste and see that Christ is indeed good. Lord, we ask that you please be with us now and be with us in our worship. We ask this in your son's holy, holy, and holy name. Amen.